If you still have a Bible handy, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. In the church Bible, that's page 1204. And in the, the black uh, larger, printer Bible, larger print Bibles, it's 1865. We're going to read from chapter 4, verse 14, through to chapter 5, verse 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people, And is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins. As well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself. But he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up, Prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. With this passage, we have arrived at one of the major topics of the book of Hebrews, Jesus as our high priest. It's already been mentioned a couple of times in the book. The end of chapter 2 described Jesus as our merciful and faithful high priest. But it's only now we begin to hear what that means. Hebrews does that. It introduces something in passing, and then it develops it a little bit later on. As we come to this, the first thing to acknowledge is this does not seem immediately relevant to us. None of us, I guess, have ever seen a high priest. The high priest was a central figure in the life of ancient Israel. But he's far removed from our day-to-day experience. There's not really a position or role in our culture that even resembles a high priest. The word priest 
probably does conjure up some ideas in our minds. But they're probably not very helpful ideas when it comes to understanding the book of Hebrews. Modern day priests just aren't the same thing. The role of the high priest seems to belong to another place and another time. But it's worth our while to try and understand this. Why? Because Hebrews tells us we have a living high priest. And he operates at the very highest level of authority. He does his work from the throne of Almighty God. When you and I understand that, we suddenly have a great incentive to get to grips with this. We realize the reason we have no high priest on earth is because we have one in heaven. So there's good reason we don't see priests anymore, high priests. They're gone because the ultimate one has arrived. And that should make the Old Testament high priest much more significant for us. Because those characters in the Old Testament help us to understand our own high priest. That's what Hebrews is going to do. It's going to point us to the Old Testament to help us understand what we have today in Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us he is our representative in heaven. That is one of the key roles of the high priest. He represents the people to God. He goes into the, God, into the presence of God on behalf of the people. In the Old Testament, that meant, first of all, going into the tabernacle tent, and then later on, going into the temple in Jerusalem. In both cases, the high priest went into the most holy place, and he went alone to represent everyone else. He went to obtain mercy and grace from heaven for the people. And here, our passage starts by showing us where Jesus Christ has gone on our behalf. Chapter 4, verse 14. We have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. Jesus, the Son of God. The tabernacle tent is long gone. The temple in Jerusalem is long gone. Jesus Christ has gone right to God's throne for us. And as great as that is, it immediately raises a question. It's the same kind of question we ask a lot about our politicians. Do they really know what it's like to be us? They're supposed to be our representatives, but can they represent us? What do they know about our situation? We hear that accusation again and again. They're out of touch with us. They've never had to cope with ordinary life. They're career politicians. They live in a Westminster bubble. They've never done a day's duty as a normal member of the population. Now, when it comes to our representatives in Parliament... That may be a fair criticism in some cases. In other cases, it may not. But when it comes to our representative in heaven, we're bound, I think, to ask the same question. If our representative in heaven is the Son of God, can he represent us well? 
What does the Son of God know about our situation? The answer comes in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. It's put negatively there, but the meaning is positive. We have a high priest who is able to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But what does that mean, to feel sympathy? It means to genuinely share in our experience. It is not just a case of, oh, I know how you feel. True sympathy feels with us. It doesn't just observe and try to understand what we're going through. True sympathy enters into our situation with us. And that's what Jesus does. The weaknesses here are human frailties. All of the weaknesses we have just because we are human beings with human minds and human emotions living in human bodies. Those weaknesses make us susceptible to all kinds of things. Weariness, discouragement, temptation. And verse 15 reminds us our representative in heaven has been through all of it. He has experienced those human weaknesses not from a distance, but from the inside. I say verse 15 is a reminder because the four New Testament Gospels record Jesus' human experience. They tell us he was hungry, he was tired, he was thirsty, he wept. He wept when his friend died. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. Luke describes him in anguish. We're told he was indignant some of the time. Jesus was not like Iron Man, protected from real life by a suit of armor. Jesus did not magically glide over difficulties or dodge them. He was a true human being. He knows the full range of human emotions, desires, and experiences. Have you ever been misunderstood? Jesus knows what that feels like. Have you ever been mocked? Rejected? Betrayed? Have you ever been at the very end of your tether? Jesus knows what that feels like. And he knows the full length and breadth of temptation. Verse 15 says he's been tempted in every way, just as we are. If you want more detail on that, Steve preached a good sermon on it last Sunday night from Matthew chapter 4. One writer says, Jesus' human experience has given him the gift of sympathy. When people have lived 
a sheltered life, if we've lived a sheltered life, it can make us either patronizing towards other people or it can make us harsh on other people. If we have never been strained to the very breaking point, emotionally and physically, if we've never been there, then we just can't understand why people snap sometimes. Are they pathetic? Are they just not spiritual enough? When we have not walked in other people's shoes, it can be very difficult for us to show patience and to show understanding. It can be difficult for us to help because we just don't get them. But Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, did not lead a sheltered human life. And so this passage will go on to tell us he is able to deal gently with us. When we come back again and again and again struggling with the exact same issue, Jesus does not explode in anger and frustration. Nor does he wave us away like he just doesn't know what to do with us. He deals with us. He knows exactly how to deal with us. And he does it gently. But maybe some of you have spotted here something that looks like a fly in the ointment. A flaw in this really good scenario. Verse 15 says, He was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. See, you might say, can he really understand us? He doesn't know what it's like to sin. He has not experienced that significant part of human life. This always used to bother me as well. It seemed to work against the idea of Jesus entering into our situation, right? But then I heard a preacher called Tim Keller talking about this. And he said something very helpful. He asked this question. What is it that stops you and me truly understanding other people? What is it that keeps me from fully entering into someone else's situation? It's my sin. No matter how much I care, I don't really want to be in your shoes. Because I'm more interested in my own situation. I'm self-absorbed to one degree or another. So I'm never fully focused on you and your situation. I've got my own stuff going on. There are things that I want. There are things that I'm pursuing in life. Things that I'm preoccupied with. And so however much I make an effort... I am never truly in it with you. There comes a point where my own concerns are going to trump yours. So when it comes to sympathy, what does sin mean? It means there are depths of your experience where no other human being will go with you. 
Sin stops us having that total understanding of one another. No one is going to go with you to the very depths except Jesus. His love and concern for you is not short-circuited by sin. It's not handicapped by self-absorption on his part. And so Tim Keller says, Jesus is perfect love. There is no barrier. He loves you better than you love yourself and far more wisely. He goes down deep into our pain and feels it with us. Your representative in heaven knows you. He is for you in a way that no one else will ever be for you. And he can help you. Verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is an encouragement to pray. And to pray freely and completely openly. As you and I begin to grasp who it is we're praying to, our prayers are going to be free and open. We realize we're not talking to a headmaster who's frowning on us. Apologies to the headmaster. We're not talking to a prosecutor who's waiting to catch us out. Our representative in heaven knows us, he feels with us, and he knows exactly the mercy we need. The message of these verses is that Jesus shares our experience and is ready to help us. So whatever state you're in today, please understand this. Through Jesus Christ, you have access to the throne of the universe. You are understood there. You're understood there in a way no one else understands you. And the help that's available from God's throne is the kind of help you will not find anywhere else. Jesus loves you better than you love yourself and far more wisely. So don't draw back from heaven in your situation. Speak freely to your representative there. He is the perfect representative. It is not presumptuous for you and me to look to heaven for help. The presumptuous thing is to hold back as if heaven doesn't care. A representative in heaven can help us in our situation, and he can do even more than that. He offers us an eternal cure for our situation. The Son of God came to earth not only so he could feel our pain and help us through it, He came to solve the root problem of our pain. 
And in doing that, he went way beyond what any other high priest could do. Having told us Jesus shares our experience and is ready to help us, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, Jesus overcame our experience and is able to save us. Chapter 5 starts by going all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. These verses give us some key details about the high priest. He's one of the people selected from among the people. He represents the people to God, bringing sacrifices for their sins. And we noticed earlier, he is able to deal gently with the people. But in the case of the Old Testament high priest, he needed to be dealt with gently himself. He needed God's mercy along with the rest of the people because he had sins of his own that needed forgiveness. And then notice the point in verse 4. It was not Aaron who decided the people needed a priest. God set up the priesthood and God appointed the high priest. It was all God's idea and all God's initiative. Then verses 5 to 10 tell us the Old Testament high priest was there to set the stage for the true high priest. Aaron and his successors were an explanation of what God was going to provide perfectly through Jesus. The writer of Hebrews shows us that point by point. Verse 4 told us Aaron was selected and appointed by God. Now verse 5 says, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The first quotation is from Psalm 2. It was originally used at the appointment of Israel's king. And so, today I have become your father has nothing to do with parentage. It's to do with God installing his king. And here, those same words are applied to Jesus being installed by God as high priest. The second quotation is from Psalm 110. This one is going to come up plenty more times in Hebrews. We're going to hear a lot about this man, Melchizedek, one of the most mysterious characters in the Old Testament. But we're going to save that for later because the whole of chapter 7 is devoted to Melchizedek. We'll deal with him then. At this stage, the second quotation is here just to underline the point. Just as Aaron didn't claim the priesthood for himself, neither did Jesus. He was appointed to it 
by God the Father. And he was appointed to it forever. There were many high priests before Jesus. There will never be another after him. He's the one all those other priests were leading up to. He does to perfection what they could only do imperfectly. And he will never be replaced. And the next verses tell us why. Verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. The word offered here makes a connection with what was said about Aaron back in verse 1. Aaron offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. Here we're told Jesus the high priest offered prayers and petitions with fervent cries. What's the connection? Well, Jesus' sacrifice was his perfect obedience. Verse 7 is almost certainly referring to the Garden of Gethsemane and all that came after Gethsemane. Jesus went to that place the night before he died. And he went there knowing all that was ahead of him. Torture, crucifixion, and worst of all, the experience of being cut off from his father. Mark tells us, in Gethsemane, Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He told his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The human emotion of sorrow has never been experienced so profoundly as Jesus experienced it that night. And in the midst of that overwhelming sorrow came this prayer from Jesus. Father, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. The cup Jesus is referring to is his death. But did Jesus not know it was going to come down to this? In fact, did he not come to earth determined to go to the cross? Yes, and yes. He'd spoken many times about how the cross must happen. He told his disciples he came to earth for the cross. So what was going on in the garden? Jesus was experiencing what it means to obey God fully. No human being had ever done that before. And Jesus himself had not been through this before. In the garden, Jesus was in uncharted territory. The territory of obeying when he felt overwhelmed with the desire to turn back. But we're told in that darkest situation, he reverently submitted to go through with what he came to do. Now verse 7 says, he was heard. When we look at what came after Jesus' prayer, clearly being heard 
doesn't mean that Jesus avoided death. It means the father did not abandon his son to death. He vindicated him by raising him from the grave. And beyond that, raising him all the way to his throne in heaven. But what was the point of all this? Why did Jesus have to pass through these depths of sorrow and suffering? Hebrews tells us it was to provide us with a perfect, fully qualified high priest. Verse 8. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. How could the Son of God learn obedience? Well, it is not the case that Jesus was a bit rebellious and he needed to be brought in line. No, he learned obedience by being obedient all the way to the cross. He learned by experience what it means to obey in the face of overwhelming sorrow and temptation. That experience made him completely fit to be our high priest. That's what made perfect means. Perfectly qualified for the role he had been given. It was only by experiencing the depths of human pain that Jesus could come to sympathize fully with us in our weaknesses. It was only by being obedient in the depths of his own weakness that he could become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. His sacrifice was perfect. It was not tainted by any sin of his own. It was enough then to pay for our sin. Jesus overcame our experience and is able to save us. But notice this eternal salvation is not given to everyone. In verse 9, it's for all who obey him. Now clearly that is not saying our obedience earns us salvation. Why is it not saying that? Because the same verse says Jesus is the source of salvation. It is not achieved by any effort on our part. But what we are being told is that we cannot receive eternal salvation without a commitment to Jesus. That means trusting the work he did on the cross and then making it our life's goal to obey him, live for him. There can be no salvation if we ignore our high priest. The passage closes in verse 10 with another mention of Melchizedek. We've already said we're going to deal with him when the writer of Hebrews does in chapter 7. But verse 10 does remind us it was God the Father who designated his son as our great high priest. When it comes to showing mercy and grace, 
Heaven is not divided. One of the tragic mistakes that we can make is to imagine that God the Son loves us, but God the Father has it in for us. As if the Father is reluctant to give us grace and mercy. But these verses show it was the Father's initiative to provide this representative in heaven for us. A representative who offers both eternal salvation and grace for the needs of each day. Grace to follow him in obedience, even when we think it's beyond us. Jesus has gone further in his obedience than any of us have. He can lead us to new experiences of reverent submission to God. So look to him for that this week. Come to him committed to obedience and he will help you in your time of need. Never think your situation is too tough for his mercy and grace to bring you through it. Believe it or not, he knows how to deal with tougher situations even than yours. And never think your life is beyond the reach of his eternal salvation. Again, come to him with a commitment to obey. Come with trust that he has done enough to save you. In life and in his death and in his heavenly ministry, Jesus Christ has provided all you will ever need. In a moment we're going to remember and celebrate that together as we gather around the Lord's table. But first let's respond together as we sing, first of all, How Great Are You, Lord.